Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. No one wants to go to court, obviously, but for some reason we are entertained by it, aren't we? That's why they make TV shows about the courtroom, because the courtroom can be entertaining at times. For example, I'm going to read to you just a couple of brief transcripts, excerpts from real court exchanges. In the first one, there's a doctor on the stand. And the attorney says, Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. So then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. I see, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Yes, it's possible that he could have been alive and practicing law. The next interchange was taken between a lawyer and his client who was on on the stand. And uh, the attorney asks, she had three children, right? Yes, says the witness. Uh, How many were boys? None, says the witness. Were there any girls? Your Honor, I think I need a different attorney. Can I get a different attorney? These, These attorneys weren't the most skilled in asking questions. Their questions, some of them weren't even worth considering. And in Romans chapter 3, we find something similar. We're going to put mankind on trial today. In God's courtroom, and sinful man, as we're going to see, gets very creative in asking questions, trying to justify himself. Some of the questions are going to be just like those attorneys' questions. They're not even worth considering. They just prove man's condemnation, as the Apostle Paul's going to state. But so far in Romans, Paul has basically drug by the collar, (laughs) the whole world before God's throne. And in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, he drug the pagan world before God's throne and declared them guilty. They've all broken the law of creation and conscience. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, in the first half, he drug the moralist before the throne of God and said, you're guilty too. Because you break the law of conscience all the time. Your self-righteousness is not going to get you to heaven. And then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul proved the Jewish world, the Jews guilty of breaking the law of Moses. And he basically picked on three, well, so far, the Jews were relying, if you want to think of it, uh, they, they relied, they trusted 
their salvation to four legs on a stool. That's what they sat on. That's what they relied on. These four legs on a stool. Number one was the law. Number two was circumcision. Number three was natural birth, or just being a physical descendant of Abraham. And Paul has so far kicked out three of the legs on their stools. He's only got one more left. But the law can't save the Jew. Physical circumcision can't save the Jew. Natural birth can't save the Jew. And he even said at the end of that, chapter 2, that a true Jew, a true God-praiser, that he's using a play on words there because the name Jew means God-praiser. A true God-praiser is one who is one inwardly by the Spirit. The, basically, the outward externals like circumcision and natural birth or good works that they relied upon isn't going to save them or anyone else, for that matter. You have to be born again by the Spirit of God to become a true God-praiser. And so because Paul said these things, which would have deeply offended the Jews, he's going to now experience pushback from them. And Paul, being a Jew himself, having preached for decades now, witnessed for decades, has preached the gospel for decades, he now anticipates their typical theological arguments or rebuttals that they're going to throw back at him. That's what we're looking at today. Some of the, their arguments that they would have responded to Paul with. And if there's one sport that the Jews are good at, it's arguing. It's been called their most popular sport. Afghanistan's good at cricket, Australia, football, Israel arguing. I had a friend post this a couple of weeks ago on social media. I thought it was hilarious because that's what I was just getting ready to talk about. This is their professional sport, but Paul's going to argue that argument cannot save the Jew. Theological argument can't save the Jew. So let's look at verses 1 through 2 as we, he starts to go through these different arguments that they would make. Verse 1 says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So after what Paul just got done saying in chapter 2, that the Jew and the Gentile are on a level playing field with the Gentiles, salvation-wise, they're all condemned, they're all sinners, they've broken the laws given to them, the Mosaic law the Jews broke, the law of the conscience, whatever the Gentiles broke. At this point, many would ask, well, then what's, what advantage does the Jew have? I mean, that's a reasonable question. That's a good question to ask. What, what good is it? What, does it even matter? What good is it to be a Jew? So that's the objection number one. If, if being a Jew inwardly is what counts, then what advantages do the Jews have? If any. It's a good question. After what Paul said previously, you might expect him to reply with, well, none really. But that's not what he says. What does he say? The great in every respect. And so, his unexpected response should make us think a little bit deeper about the nature of his arguments and the meaning of that phrase that the gospel's to the Jew first. Because a lot of people just take that chronologically. And they say, well, God's done with Israel. Israel, the gospel went to the Jew first, now he's done. 
but you can't just do that with this scripture. You have to, it's a little bit more complex than most people think. Even though the Jews and the Gentiles are on the same footing as sinners before God, both are saved the same way by grace through faith in Christ. That's the only way any man has ever been saved. But by grace through faith, the Jews still have a place of priority and privilege in the outworking of God's program. The equal access of us Gentiles to the Jews with the Jews does not destroy the genuine privileges enjoyed by Israel. Paul's going to discuss this more in depth in Romans 9 through 11, but here he's just introducing it in brief. In Romans 9, Paul lists several advantages that the Jews have, and here he just lists one. He said, first, first they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God is a reference to the words of God. When you think of an oracle, just think of a word from God, like a prophet gave the words of God or utterances of God. God gave to Israel and no other nation his law, his scriptures. The Jews wrote the scriptures. If you have a Bible in your hands this morning, you have a Jew to thank for those scriptures. Every author is is Jewish. Some question, maybe Luke, but even if Luke, Luke was a doctor, he had to be a Jew, right? But even if Luke wasn't, he still wrote under the authority of Paul, and he's writing under Paul's initiative. So, all your scriptures are Jewish. You have the Jews to thank. And so having the word of God, being able to know God and his will precisely, a lot more precisely than the Gentiles did with their natural revelation, this was a great advantage for them. Many commentators pointed out that this term oracles, however, stresses the messianic prophecies and promises of God that were given to Israel in particular, the promises about the Messiah. God made promises to them, And they still belong to them, even though at present it seems kind of like his program with Israel is on pause. But that's because they had rejected and not received their Messiah. And so the next objection springboards off of that fact. The Jews might have said, yes, we have the oracles, but some didn't believe. Doesn't that put God in a bind? who promised to redeem and restore the kingdom to Israel? What happened? God promised this was going to happen. It didn't happen. So what's the deal? Does that put God in a bind? Does Jewish unbelief put God in a bind? Objection number two. What does Paul say? What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, and, every, and though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So because some Jews had failed to believe in Christ, they rejected the Messiah, for example, the validity of God's promises to them are being questioned by the objector. God's character, specifically his ability to keep his word, is on the line. He made this promise. It doesn't look like he's keeping it. So what's the deal? 
Uh, Fruchtenbaum paraphrased it this way, is it not true that the Jewish unbelief has canceled out the promises to Israel contained in the oracles of God? Paul's response, may it never be. May it never be. Meganoita is the Greek term. For heaven's sake, no. Made that thought, basically, never even enter your mind. Meganoita is like the, it's the strongest Greek negation there is. It's like saying no, no, and no. Meganoita. And it's the first time we're going to hear it. First of 11 times we are going to hear it in this book and it's most of the time it's in regard to God's righteous character and the idea that God would deny his word and so Paul says meganoita because if anything the unfaithfulness of Israel is just proving the faithfulness of God what do you mean by that well by punishing them for their disobedience he's being faithful to what he said Or, if he restores them in the future, like Romans 11 talks about, he's being faithful to his word. I mean, the fact that they're under the wrath of God proves that he's faithful to them. He's doing exactly what he said. God is going to be found true, no matter how you look at it. Man's failure cannot thwart God's faithfulness to his promises, to his purpose, to his plan. 2 Timothy 2.13 even says if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. He can't go back on his word. God can't lie. We can. We change all the time. God can't change. He can't break a promise to you. Isn't that good news? And therein lies our hope, doesn't it? Makes a promise to you in Christ, he's going to keep it. He can't go back on it. Paul then quotes Psalm 51, 4, to reaffirm reaffirm that God will be true to his word. He says, that you may be justified in your words and that prevail when you are judged. So, the interesting thing about this quote is that the context is King David. You know, the, the, the beloved leader of Israel said this in a psalm where he's admitting to his sin of murder and adultery to the Lord. He's saying God is right in judging his sin. God is being just. God's being faithful in judging David's sin. Immediately after this, he says, I was conceived in sin. And so the rest of the Jews, therefore, should admit that they're sinners like David. David, their great, their great leader of Israel, admitted he was a sinner before God. How come these Jews aren't admitting that they're sinners before God? They assumed they were saved because they're descendants of Abraham or whatever. They weren't sinners like those Gentiles. Paul's saying, look, even David admitted he was conceived in sin, and he sinned, and he said God was right in judging his sin. So he's just you know, demolishing their argument here. His faithfulness. To his word includes his commitment not only to bless but to punish Israel for their sin. And so with that logic applied, we can better understand the next set of questions where it starts to get ridiculous like the attorneys in the introduction. Verse 5 says, but if our unrighteousness, now Paul's a Jew, remember, and he's including himself among the Jewish people here who are in his audience at Rome. 
But if our unrighteousness, our Jewish unrighteousness, demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? That the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. So, objection number three. This is a, a lot to think through but, and comprehend. But if Jewish unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, then isn't God unjust to inflict wrath on the Jew? It's a, that is a, a crazy question, isn't it? It's as clever as it is brainless. Okay, because they're saying, since our sin makes God look good, well then why should God judge us because we're doing him a favor with our sinning? That is weird, y'all. Can I say that? That is strange. If our unrighteousness proves God is righteous, then how can God still condemn us for our sin? It's contributing to His glory. It's contributing to His plan. Yes, we crucified the Messiah, but that was part of the plan. It should glorify Him. That's the reasoning here. So, it's an end justifies the means argument. The argument is real. I have no doubt Paul heard this many times, but it's so ridiculous that Paul has to say, I'm speaking in human terms in parentheses. I mean, that, that's his way of saying, I don't believe this. I'm just stating it because that's the argument that's been made before. And this is just crazy human philosophy here that it's, I don't even I don't want these words in my mouth. Is what he's saying because it's near blasphemy that my sin makes God look good, so therefore he can't punish me for it. Guys, this is this is what we call self justification of our sin. Self justification of sin is what happens when a self righteous person who doesn't think they're unrighteous gets caught in their unrighteousness. Does that make sense? They start to reason unrealistically. So there's a, an apologist, evangelist, that I like to, to watch on YouTube sometimes. And he just goes around witnessing to different people in pub, public. And he'll start by asking them if they think they're a good person. Do you think you're a good person? Do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? And they all say, yeah. Yeah, I think I am a pretty good person. And they don't realize it yet, but just in saying that means that they're a self-righteous person because they're saying they're good enough. And so the evangelist says, okay, do you mind if we measure your character against God's law and the Ten Commandments? Let's take your life and put it up against God's standard and see if it's as straight as God's standard. Well, they agree, and so he says, great, let's, let's take commandment number eight. Thou shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? And most of them say, yes, I have, but, you know, it, it was a long time ago, and I've never stolen anything really big or significant. So he says, okay, so you're a thief. <laughs> you, you have stolen yeah, Don't, that's all you have to say about it, right? And then he says, uh, how about number nine, commandment number nine, thou shall not lie. Have you ever lied? And they say, well, 
Yeah, but, you know, this white lies, I typically, in the past, again, it's, it's always little sin, and then it's always distant from the present. And then he says, okay, have you ever coveted, have you ever lusted, committed adultery, and they all have to say yes and yes. And then he says, okay, well, according to the Ten Commandments, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. And then they say, wow, when you put it that way, <laughs> right? If, if they're honest, they'll say, yeah, I guess that's true. What should I do? But what do most people do that he's witnessing to do? They say, well, yeah, but, but God's a God of love. He would never judge me. Or... I'm just, I'm not as bad as most people. I've lied. Yeah, but I've, ne- I've never killed anybody. Yeah, but you've hated. Jesus said that's the same thing. Or they say, well, God wouldn't give me these desires, these desires if he didn't want me to fulfill them. There's always an excuse. Man gets very creative with his sin when he doesn't want to admit that he's a sinner. He doesn't want to admit his need for Christ. The Jew that Paul is dealing with here is much more complex in his theology. Uh, but sin is sin. And while God is love, he's also what? Holy and perfect. Perfectly just, too. And so sin cannot go unpunished. Someone has to pay for it. You have sinned. You have broken God's law. Who's going to pay for that? You should. You're accountable. We'll get to the good news later on that. But just because human sin and unfaithfulness have been used by God to bring about good and enhance God's glory, it's no less deserving of punishment. That's what Paul's communicating here. So, does that make God unrighteous? Paul's response, may it never be. Meganointa. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? How will God judge the world? So if God can't judge the Jew because his sin makes the righteousness of God more evident, well then, he can't deal with any sinner at all. He can't judge the world. And every Jew believed God was going to judge the world. He can't judge the Jew for his sins. He can't judge anybody else for their sins. So with that sort of reasoning, God would just have to get rid of all judgment altogether and he would have to deny his holy holiness, his holy character. But... Man's unrighteousness just shows that God has the right to be their judge. Now look at verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also being judged? Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say as we apostles, Christians, are slanderously reported... And as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So, because Paul taught salvation by grace through faith in Christ, apart from works, apart from the works of the law, apart from law, remember people were accusing Paul of preaching antinomianism or license the idea that God saves you or forgives you so that you can sin 
instead of freeing you from sin. A lot of people interpret it. There's, some people are so scared to say that Christians are not under a law because they think that if we just say Christians aren't under law anymore, then they're just going to, you know, they're going to, it's going to be sin city. You know, if Christians are going to sin away. But that's not the reality of what happens. And so Paul says, if, uh, if what you say is true that our sin can't be punished because it glorifies God, well then, why would they give him a hard time for teaching license, hypothetically? Is that, you gotta, there's a lot of reasoning in this passage. It's kind of hard to keep up. They're accusing Paul of teaching license that people can just live in sin, and then, which is wrong, but then they're saying that my sin glorifies God. So why would they? He's just exposing their hypocrisy here. And shutting them down. And at this point, Paul just says, their condemnation is just. The charge isn't even worth refuting. You guys better get a new attorney because that's not going to hold up on Judgment Day. If anyone thinks that God should overlook his sin because in some sense it glorifies God, that person deserves condemnation. It's just evidence that they're a sinner. So, now we come to the conclusion on this entire bad news section. Not the conclusion of the sermon, but the conclusion of the entire bad news section of Romans chapter 1 that began in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. So next time we pick it up in Romans, we'll be in the good news section. But here's the conclusion to the bad news section. The condemnation of all men. Verses 9 through 20. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we... Jews better than they, Gentiles. Not at all. For we've already charged. There's your courtroom terminology. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All men are under sin. All of mankind is under sin. Paul doesn't just say here that all men are sinners, does he? He says all are under sin, meaning we are under the power and the penalty of sin, singular. Sin, the force of sin, that's the charge. They sin because they're sinners at heart. All men are, are guilty, they are condemned, they are powerless to save themselves from the power and penalty of sin. We're in bondage to sin. And to prove it, Paul strings together several Old Testament passages in a rabbinic practice known as pearl stringing, stringing together different Old Testament quotes, verse 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Remember, he's quoting scripture here. That was the character of man. How many are righteous? None. How many have turned aside? All. Now he moves on to the evidence. So he goes from character to conversation. Their throat, verse 13, is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 
Now he moves on to conduct. Their, sweet, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they have not known. Here's the bottom line why. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What Paul has done here is he has demonstrated the universal sway of sin over man. How many righteous are there? None. How many do good? How many understand the spiritually the things of God? How many are spiritual? None. How many seek God? None. How many have turned aside? All. Every one of us. The evidence is in what man is and what man says and what man does. Open, shut case. Guilty. Theologians like to call this teaching the depravity of man because it shows that man is, that sin has permeated every aspect of man's being. His character, his conversation, his conduct. The natural, unspiritual man is far enough from God that God must make some sort of first move in order to restore man to him. At least, at the least what that means is that the Spirit has to convict an individual of their sin and righteousness and judgment so that they can believe and be saved. And what's interesting about the context of these verses is that they refer to wicked people within Israel. He's reminding the Jews in his audience that he's writing to that they cannot claim special exemption from sin because these verses describe them. And with the charges laid against them, he moves into the verdict. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes knowledge of sin so that's the verdict all men are accountable to God without excuse unable to save themselves terrifying isn't it i think it was how alva j McLean, he said god paul has brought man to the judgment bar of God and left them there on their knees, silent and trembling. What does man do? He's helpless, hopeless, under sin. He says, you're not, you're not going to get in by keeping the law. The law is like a chain. If you break it once, the chain is broken. You've broken one link, you've broken the whole chain. If you break one law in society, right, you're guilty of breaking the law. You're guilty. You deserve to be punished. It's that simple. To be justified by the law, you have to keep it perfectly. No man has ever done that or ever will ever do that besides our Savior. So, the law, Paul says, was intended. That's not even what the law was ever intended to do. To justify men, he says the the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. It's to 
give us a knowledge of our sin so that when we do look at the Ten Commandments and we see, yeah, I do, I have stole, I have lied, I have not honored my father and mother here, I have coveted, we see not only who God is, but we see who we really are and we see ourselves as sinners, as lawbreakers who are guilty. And that law was intended to be a tutor that leads us to Christ to teach us of our need for a Savior. But you see why this is such an important passage in your Bibles, I hope, today. So many people in our society yawn. When they hear about Jesus Christ being the Savior of the world, they yawn at Him. As if, like, it's just so boring. That's because they have a weak view of sin. They have a weak view of the Savior because they have a weak view of sin and who they really are. Most people think they're good enough. The reality is they're not. And they can never, ever be good enough. And if they could, then Jesus Christ did not need to come and give his life for us. We are all condemned before God as sinners. The wages of sin is death. We need a Savior. Some people think that when they stand before God, that they're going to give Him an earful. I'm going to tell Him a thing or two. Gonna give him a piece of my mind. They think they're gonna justify themselves before God. What does Paul say? I wouldn't do that. You're not gonna be able to do that. Because it says every mouth is gonna be closed. There ain't gonna be no Judge Judy in God's courtroom. There's no arguing, there's no bickering. There's not going to be any self-justifying. There's going to be people on their knees trembling, silent before God. Because they didn't bow the knee in this life, and they were forced to bow the knee in the next. We can willingly bow our knee now and accept our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that's what you want to do. At the end of the day, we really only have two options, again, don't we, in God's courtroom? After receiving the verdict, we know we're all guilty, we know we're all men under sin, and you can do one of two things now with your guilty verdict. You're standing there, they're ready to handcuff you and drag you away. The judge has pronounced guilty, and you're getting ready to get, go to prison, right? Be ready in God's courtroom to be condemned to hell. At that point, you can say, okay, sorry, this you need to think about that in this life, actually, but you can choose to pay for your own sin in hell forever, or you can choose to let Christ pay for your sin in full on the cross so that you can go scot-free. Yes, you're guilty, but someone else came in and said, I'll pay the fine for them. 
And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did in giving himself for us. It happens in real courtrooms today. People are guilty, but someone else pays the fine for them. They go scot-free. That can happen with your sin if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your perfect advocate. He's the advocate, First John says. He's the attorney. He's the best attorney in town. And he happens to be related to the judge. First John 2, 1 through 2 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the perfectly righteous one. And he himself is the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. We all deserve punishment, but he satisfied the wrath of God against us so that we don't have to pay for our own sin. He did it for us. To reject that gift, that gracious gift, would be ridiculous. Will you accept that gift today? In your heart, just say, Lord, I understand I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And you just reach out to Him by faith today. And if you want some help with that, understanding more about eternal life and how to have it through faith in Christ, and you want to know more about what Jesus did for you, just there's plenty of people in this room who can help you out with that. Uh, I'd love to help you out with that as well. So let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. It is this morning a little bit grim, I'll be honest. It's bad news. But how happy is the man who has had the light of heaven fall on his sinful nature and exposed it so that they see their need for a Savior. Your word this morning is like a doctor who tells us we have a disease so that we can find a solution for it. How miserable the people who don't know that they even have the disease to begin with. Lord, if anyone's here today who just is aware now of their disease and their need for a Savior, I pray that today would be the day they put their trust in Christ or get to talking about someone or get to talking with someone uh, who can help them understand more about what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross through his death and burial and resurrection. Amen.